Hey everyone, Elena Alcoholic here. Uh, let's see, my sobriety date is 4-11-2020. And I'm always nervous when I speak. It's like probably my least favorite thing in the program. And it's not for why you think. It's because I do not like that feeling of like the ganks, the angst that like, you know, that feeling in your stomach. But I do like to keep the lights on. So I pay the bill. You know what I mean? So I know how this program works. And it's one of those things, you know, in order to keep it, you got to give it away. And a lot of people before me and when I was really hurting and suffering, were sharing their experience and strength and hope. And it's what got me to where I am today. <clears throat> Let's see. For me, it all started uh, in Alabama, where I was from, born. I have uh, alcoholic parents. Uh, they're very destructive, their alcoholism. Um, I didn't really know how to deal with what was going on around me. And I internalized things a lot. The first chance I got to escape or change the way I felt, I did it. It was probably, um, let's see, marijuana, I think was the first thing. My mom introduced it to me when I was seven. Um, she was like, this is marijuana and this is what I do. And I smoked it. First time I drank, I was 12. It was with my mom. I mean, pretty much all my firsts, you know, I had, um, I had all of that available around me, that environment. And I thought it was normal. And honestly, I thought um, I, I thought when my parents drank, they had some kind of control over it. And so I internalized. I was very angry about their alcoholism because I didn't understand it. And I had to live it in order to understand it. And I had to work these steps in order to get over a lot of things. Um, so for me, what got me here <clears throat> is basically um, I moved out to the West Coast and, uh, you know, to get away from Alabama, I was a deadhead. In Alabama, Get Away was my favorite song, and I got the hell out of there. So I uh, went to Oregon, and uh, just ripping and running. I was always running from myself. The reason, oh, I have to back up. The reason why I was running is because my mom committed suicide when I was 16, and it really devastated me. Um, you know, I, uh, I can't really explain it, but I was also relieved at the same time because she was that sick. And uh I, I just didn't understand what was going on, but I didn't like the way I felt. And so I was running and I ran to Oregon where my dad lived and he was also an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't even drink until my mid twenties. I did all kinds of other things to escape, but, um, I finally, I moved to the Bay area in my mid twenties and, uh, finally just, you know, enough time had passed and I had forgotten where I came from and decided Hey, you know, it's time to start drinking with my friends. You know, I had all my friends drink and uh, it was, I have a forgetter up here, you know, and I forgot where I came from. And to be quite honest, the very first time I drank it, I did not have a switch. Like, you know, when I drank, I did drink a few times in high school and each time it, it sucked because I either got sick or I did something really embarrassing because I just did not have a switch. Once I had that first drink, that was it. And that's something I really had to come to understand. I'll tell you, AA is a big delusion buster. And I've had a lot of delusions busted up in this program. And the one just I laugh about all the time. I don't take myself very seriously. But this is hilarious. Like when I was like, before I even got started drinking, I was like in the situation where there was only one beer and we were out in the boonies, like miles from a store. And for some reason, I knew, I knew that I could not drink that one beer because I would just want more. But you know what I thought? I was like, man, I am so self-aware. I am just like, you know what I mean? I just thought, wow, I just really know myself, pat myself on the back. I had no clue. 
So my drinking looked like this, you know, it was fun. Like you hear in these rooms, it was a lot of fun without any consequences. And then it was fun with consequences. And then it just wasn't fun anymore. And it was just consequences. And for me, the way I drank, I drank with impunity. You know, it was just like, you know, I wanted the strongest beer and then I wanted a double, you know, and then I just wanted it to keep coming. And for me, when I would go out with my friends drinking, I wanted to drink before we drank. And then on the way home, I was the only one drooling at the store. What's your sound, Duena? Uh-oh. Am I there back? There you go. You're back. Cool. Uh-oh. Ooh. Anyway, so I was drinking with impunity. And uh, I was the kind of drunk that, like, wanted to drink before I drank. And I wanted to drink on the way home. And basically, um, I started, like, you know, losing friends. My relationships were suffering. My relationship with my partner. I was a blackout drinker. And the stories, they didn't get better. This is a progressive disease. And so, you know, at the end of my drinking, I was hallucinating. I was getting in fights with doors and, like, you know, people that weren't there. And, like, just ridiculous you know, and I was so selfish because my partner would tell me these things. And you know what I said? Woo, I'm glad I don't remember that. You know, just like this disease is like so selfish. And I realized that once the alcohol is gone, you know, there's the me. I am the problem. And that's what I've realized. Um, so what I did was I finally like, you know, ran out of chances with my partner. And it was like ultimatum time, go to rehab. And I'm like, I'll get her off my back and go to rehab. Right. You know, <laughs> So I did. I went into rehab and you know what? I needed to do that. I needed to go in there and have some structure. I needed that bubble. I needed them to tell me what was going on, but I had no clue. I was going to spend all that money for them to tell me to go to AA, the A and A. So I made it to the A and A because they told me to go there, went up to the Elsa Bronte fellowship, came up those stairs. It was like, I couldn't believe it. These people were laughing. I had it all over me. You know, the alcoholic, it was stuck on me. And I didn't know what, I thought my life was over. Fun was over. No more fun. And I was just really raw and scared, full of fear. I didn't really have, like, didn't know what I was going to do. And I walked up those rooms and you guys were laughing and having a good time. And you're like, you know, greeting me and just like, I just, didn't, I was kind of in shock, you know, I just didn't know. Um, I didn't know. I knew I had a problem because rehab convinced me. So I came to AA because they said that's what would help me. And you guys told me you had a solution. <clears throat> well, there was a lot of God talk. And I, you know, I, at first, I didn't know that I was going to be able to get that. But thank goodness, you guys, whoever came up with whoever, you know, Bill and Bob were super smart with that uh, three, that all inclusive step three. Because I really had had to have my own concept because the one I was shown, I rejected and could not. It wasn't a all, you know, a loving God. Mine is a loving God, a loving God that accepts and 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 forgives and like, you know, guides me now today. But I had to get down to get up. So I went to the El Bronte Fellowship. I did what they told me to do. I got a sponsor. The lady held my hand and read the book with me and took time out of her, her day in order to, to explain things and to like, you know, it was just unbelievable. Like when I read that book, I couldn't believe it, y'all. I mean, I'm a Leo and I think things are a lot about me. You know, I just think I'm so wonderful. But when I like read the Alcoholics Anonymous book, I was like, they wrote a book about me. And I was so stoked. I was like, man, I found myself on every page. 
And I just related to so many things. And it's like, really, there's, it's, it's, there's really no going back for me in that regards, because I realized I was powerless. Step one, I realized how unmanageable it's gotten. Step two, I realized that I couldn't do it, that something bigger had to do it. And step three was all about making that decision to keep going, you know, and, and see. And so I, to, to work the steps. And that's what I did. And I worked the steps and I cleaned up all the wreckage that I had caused, you know, and that was like an eye opener in itself. Like, really? I caused all of that. And, uh, you know, um, it was a life changer for me, um, working the steps and definitely recommend it for anyone who hasn't getting a sponsor. is a game changer. I have to like only one day at a time for me, if I go till midnight, I'll have 756 days. I'm a day counter because if I go too far and I can't go in the future. And if I stick in the past, then I'm just pissing all over today. And I don't want to do that. You know, um, basically, I just really am into service these days. I got a service gig. Um, I'm into helping, giving it away, helping the other alcoholic. I'm open to sponsorship. I love going through the book. Like the second time I went through the book, oh my God, it was even better. I mean, just it gets better and better. I say, say gooder and gooder. But, you know, it's just an amazing life. And I'm not here to tell you that it's easy because it's not. But this is a simple program for complicated, crazy ass people, excuse my language, like me. And it is working. And I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because, uh, yeah, I don't see another way. AA has really ruined my drinking. And nowadays, the only time I ever can drink like a normal person is in my dreams. Like I one time had a drinking dream. I had one drink. I woke up all freaked out that I had one drink in my dream. And then I started laughing my ass off because there's no way unless it was a dream that I'd be having one drink. And that's about 10 minutes right there, you guys. Thank you guys so much for asking me to come. Randy Alcoholic, welcome, Scott. Uh, I remember uh, the, the last day of drinking for me was uh, watching the A's uh, sweep the Boston Red Sox in 1988. Jesus. And uh, I was just drunk as a skunk and went to bed drunk. And uh, the next day, something happened different. And I haven't had to have a drink since. So, uh, Thank you. Uh, I, but back then I had a lot of, a lot of last days. That's all part of my story. I'll tell you, you might wonder why a guy with some 33 years of sobriety is still coming to meetings. Uh, I get asked that question a lot. You know, you've been sober for 33 years. Why are you coming to meetings? And I say, this is a disease of forgetting. If it's one thing that I've learned in my time fighting alcohol and being an AA is that I have part of this disease or part of my personality or whatever it is, is I will forget that I'm an alcoholic and I'll pick up a drink. So that's why I keep coming back. And I wanna thank all of you for uh, asking me to share tonight because what does that do? That brings it up fresh for me. Uh, that, that, that when I, every time I tell my story, it reminds me of why I'm here. And, and, and it, that's the same thing when I sponsor people or I have a sponsor, it gives me the opportunity to remember that I'm an alcoholic. And the other thing I'd like to make clear today is uh, 
April, October the 7th, 1988 was not my last drink. Okay? Because I was calling it my last drink a lot of time. In the previous 16 years, I had a lot of last drinks. But I always picked it up again. And when I got to AA and found out the basic story is I'm powerless over alcohol. It dawned on me. Oh, how can I call it my last drink if I'm powerless over alcohol? That doesn't make any sense. That's what I used to do. So hopefully since then, I try to refer to October the 7th, 1988 as my most recent drink. And, and I don't try to call it my last drink. So there's a couple of reasons why I keep coming back. I was born and raised here, going back to the beginning, I was born and raised in the Bay Area in Richmond Annex. <clears throat> my grandfather died on Skid Row in Oakland. Uh, and I was 10 years old when he passed away. The cirrhosis of the liver. Never met the man. Saw him for the first time at the memorial building. Didn't know who it was. That's how bad a drunk my grandfather was. The family didn't allow him to even meet his grandchildren. So it runs in the family. I'm Swedish American. There's my Swedish flag on my hat. I'm Swedish American. My grandfather came over from Sweden as an immigrant in 1907 to Oakland. And my grandmother came from a different part of Sweden and arrived in 1908. Uh, and uh, I, two of my uncles were alcoholics. Uh, my sister is an alcoholic, she's passed away now. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. My father was not an alcoholic. And I always wondered about that. So well, how, how come all these, uh, all these grand, that's my last name, uh, are alcoholics? And uh, what happened to my father? Well, in my particular generation, it skips, it skips generation, the alcoholism, skips generation. So you'd have one alcoholic and then you'd have this very spiritual person and then his son would be an alcoholic and then they'd be a very spiritual person and then his son was an alcoholic. So, that should have given me an indication right there that the, the, one of the things that is a, is obey, keeps, keeps this disease away from us is spiritualism. But of course that didn't, didn't dawn on me. I was born and raised uh, as it, it, my family, my parents were founders of the local Lutheran church here in Richmond Annex. I went to church every Sunday and was a good little boy. My mother came down with cancer when I was 10 years old, actually when I was nine. She wasted away from a very heavy woman to a, a skin and bones when she finally passed away. It was my job to, uh, when I got home from school, it was my job to move her from one, from one side to the other and feed her mush. That was the only thing I knew how to cook. Uh, and I watched my mother die and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that she would get well and she didn't get well, she died. So what did this young 10 year old do? He threw God out, uh, nah, you're out of here. 
And then I made the determination that it was going to be up to me. My whole life depended on what I did. Willpower. Strong willpower. And then I found alcohol as a teenager, maybe 12, 13 years old. I was a full-blown alcoholic by the time I graduated from high school at El Cerrito High School. They didn't know what to do with me. They gave me three periods of PE locker room. I don't know if they do that anymore, but they didn't know what they did to do with me. So they stuck me in the locker room and said, Brandy, it's your job to protect the lockers. You just sit here and be quiet and check and keep an eye on the lockers. That, and, and then they graduated. So I was already a full-blown alcoholic. Then the Vietnam War came along and uh, I didn't want to go fight. I didn't want to be in the army. So I signed up for the uh, reserves, naval reserves. Well, I hadn't taken any for six months. So my drinking buddy and I, yeah, we, we finally ended up going to Treasure Island to take the test. Of course, we were drunk and uh, uh, did lousy on the, on the test, uh, but uh, they took me. And uh, through a series of good fortune, I went to Radioman School and they sent me to Yokosuka, Japan for a two-year tour of duty. I drank the whole time. I was away from home for the first time and uh, they had a beer machine in the barracks and I got my overnight pass shortly after I got there and I didn't return to base to live at the sleep at night for the next two years. I was off and running, had a great old time, almost got kicked out, didn't get kicked out, came back. I did my job at uh, Treasure Island uh, one night, uh, uh, one weekend a month by then. And I would check in and, and then check out and sneak out and go to the enlisted man's club and drink, you know, for, for as, as long as I could. I mean, I was a rebel and I got in an awful lot of trouble. So by age 25, I finally realized in writing, I have it, I have the paper in my own handwriting. So it's not typed, so I know it's me that wrote it. And it starts off with, I'm an alcoholic at age 25, 1972. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew that the first drink was gonna get me. And I, I, I wish I could tell you today that I, I went to the library and I looked up what an alcoholic was. I didn't do that. I wish I could tell you I went to AA in 1972. Didn't do that. Ah, Randy is going to beat this thing by self-will. I'm going to beat alcohol. And I battled alcohol for the next 16 years. And when it talks about this morning or earlier today at the beginning of the meeting, we read more about alcoholism. That was my story. I tried everything. Have you ever tried the one drink formula? I'm only going to have one drink. And I'm tired of going back on my word and this and that. So I'm really convinced I'm only going to have one drink. So I got a glass the first time and I, I put some booze in it. And oh, okay, I did it. Only one drink. There was a problem though. I kept getting, the glass kept getting bigger and the booze kept getting stronger. 
at the end of that experiment, two weeks later, it lasted two weeks, I had a toll from a pizza parlor on Mosier Lane in El Cerrito. It was the biggest glass I could find that didn't have a handle like a pitcher. And in it was rum, the strongest rum I could find. And today, that sounds ridiculous. But back then, it made all the sense in the world because I was tired of going back on my word. I'm only going to have one drink. That was more important than anything else, that I wasn't going back on my word. And I failed again. And each time I failed, I would go to my friends and say, I've learned my lesson. I'm not crazy. That was my mistake. I didn't think I was crazy, but I was crazy. But I tell them, I'm not crazy. I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink. I can't have one drink. And they'd look at me and say, oh, he, he's serious. I mean, you know, hey, he, he's not bullshitting. He's serious. But then something would happen, nothing would happen, whatever would happen. I'd forget and I'd pick up the first drink and off and running I'd go. And then I'd hit another bottle. I really learned this time. Okay, I've got it down now. I know I can't drink. This happened over and over and over again. Why? Because I didn't know what I was up against. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know what all of you know. All I knew was all the things that this alcoholic tried to stay sober. So when I finally got to AA, which was a synchronistic event, I finally got to AA. Uh, I wanted to tell all of you. I, you know, I, I remember going to my first meeting. You know, I was all excited. I went to the secretary the meeting, El Cerrito Fellowship upstairs. I went to the secretary. I was all excited. When do I get to share? When do I get to share? I want to tell you about all this experience that I have. I know how to stop drinking. And they say, Randy, keep coming back. Problem was, I knew how to stop drinking. I didn't know how to stay stop drinking. There's a big difference between quitting drinking and staying stop drinking. But I was like full of it. And I was so full of it, I asked one guy to sponsor me. He had some excuse. I asked somebody else. He had an 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 excuse. The seventh guy was the secretary of my first meeting. And he says, Randy. I'll sponsor you, but we got to work together on this. And he became my sponsor. And he got me into sponsorship right away. He got me into general service. It was the one, you know, talk about something synchronistic. He was the one I was supposed to get. He knew how to handle Randy. For a long time. He's passed away now. But, you know, Flash forward 15 years from that, that moment, and I'll show you how still crazy I was. We were in general service. We were going up to Petaluma for an area meeting, right? I had just had a meeting with my, my son's mother up in Portland, Oregon, and something was bothering me, and I wanted to tell him about it, right? So I got her to talk about it. He says, Randit, 
you need to write this thing down. You write down everything that happened, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. We drove about another five miles, and I'm out, I'm going, and I'm telling him about it. Rand it. We're not going to talk about this until you write about it. Now, you know better. We went to the area meeting, finished it off, driving back. Could, couldn't stop. Couldn't stop. So what does he do? He's driving. I'm in the front seat. He slams on the brake on a 101, pulls off the highway, pulls onto the shoulder, turns to me and says, Randy, you're going to write about this, and then we're going to talk about it. And that's the last time I'm telling. So I went home, and I wrote it down. And of course, it was all clear, because that's what happens when you write it down. And instead of trying to remember everything and it's spinning around like a rabbit cage or a squirrel cage, it was all clear. So when I met him that night, by the time I had finished reading to him what I had wrote, it was, the solution was clear. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that why do you need a sponsor? You know, that's the question here. Well, why do I need a sponsor? In my case, having a sponsor is somebody that when I get all riled up and the committee is going like crazy, I want somebody that knows what I've been through, knows my history, knows me. I don't want somebody new that I have to make friends with. I want somebody that knows what's going on up here. And that's why I have a sponsor. And that's what I hope to do when I sponsor other people, is to be a good listener and, and to bring out the, the, the things that that person has forgotten. Because again, alcoholism for me is a disease of forgetting. Now I'll tell you another thing about the spiritual side. Yeah, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Uh, about the spiritual thing. So I told you earlier that I threw God out when I was young. If you told me that you were spiritual, it was my duty to talk you out of it. And I was good at it. I had all the things, you know, well, what about this? What about that? You know, but I got to AA. And uh, by the way, I read the book first before I got to AA. Somebody, uh, uh, that I was living with, bottomed out. I was living with an alcoholic. And uh, she went in for treatment and uh, somebody had given her the big book. So she uh, she turned me on to it. Her, her story, she wanted me to re read her story. The Housewife Who Drank at Home, third edition. Okay, so it's a woman's story. Well, what's it got to do with me? I'm a man. A woman's story. But it told my story. Of all the stories in the third edition, the housewife who drank at home was the one story I needed to read before I read anything further, because the first half was her story. And the second half of that story was my story. All the things she tried to do on willpower to stay sober. All the things, you know, to keep busy all the time and do this and, you know, 
And it was a perfect story. And it piqued my interest. I went to the front of the book and I read all the way through it. And I got to the part where it's we agnostic. They have those pesky things called, called uh, footnotes. Oh, you ever run across footnotes? I, you know, I, hey, if it's important enough, they're going to put it in the text. I never read footnotes. Footnotes are useless. But Bill, I found out later, learned how to write from his military service. And they told Bill when he was in the military, World War I, you got to tell people what to do three times. Figure out three different ways to do it and then talk about it. Sorry, my phone just went off. I forgot to turn it off. Anyway, so uh, so I ignored the first footnote and read a few more pages. And there's another footnote. Please turn to Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. Ah, forget it. Read a few more pages, we agnostics, and there it is again. This time they said, please, please turn to Appendix 2, spiritual experience. Uh, okay. So I turned Appendix 2 thinking it was going to be long as a long story, page and a half. And boy, did it make sense. When it talked about, and, and the quote, the quote at the end of Appendix 2. It says, contempt prior to investigation. And I thought people were talking about me. I swear to God. I thought that whoever wrote this quote is trying to get me because that's exactly what I had been doing. I had had contempt prior to investigation. And it all suddenly made sense to me. And I looked up and I said something and I wrote it down so I remember what I said. And I looked up in the air because I was used to going to church as a young person, looked up in the air and I says, I don't know who you are or what you are. And then of course the weasel words come out. And please don't expect me to change everything at once. But I'm willing to investigate. Show me a sign. I was a doubting Thomas. I could never believe in something because somebody else had a spiritual experience. I had to see it for myself. I knew that about myself. So I included it. My first honest prayer I had said since my mother died. Show me a sign. And did I get hit across the head? Whew. Things started to happen. Things that if you're not a betting man and you bet, what are the odds that this would happen? Nobody would give you odds on now, I'd, I'd like to sit here and say to you today that all these spiritual experiences that I had is what kept me sober. But this is a disease of forgetting. I can have a spiritual experience and forget all about it a couple of days later, even though I write it down, not in the head. But AA had an answer for that. It's in pages 83 through 88 of the big book, steps 10 and 11. Morning inventory, evening inventory. We're not disciplined. This is the way we discipline. The shortest paragraph that I can find. It works. It really does. And that's the sentence that my sponsor and my 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 Texas sponsor passed away, so I got another sponsor. 
He heard me say one day in a meeting, we have a daily reprieve based on our spiritual condition. And he looked at me and he says, Randy, he says, that's not what it says. Go look it up on page 83 or 84. It says what it says is we have a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance. And he says the key words is maintenance of our spiritual condition. So having synchronistic events is fine. And they, and they made me believe and they gave me faith. But daily, I need to do things like the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer is my favorite prayer. And I would mouth it at meetings and old timer came up to me and he says, do you understand what you're saying? I see you move your lips. Do you understand what you're saying? I said, well, I, I think so. He says, well, get a dictionary. He says, look up the words and then look up the opposites of the word. Well, I went to the dictionary and it says, grant. Well, okay, I'll look that one up. I'm asking for something. I'm asking for a gift. And it said serenity. I had no idea what serenity was. What the heck is serenity? Well, I look up the opposite, anxiety. <laughs> oh, I know what anxiety is. Yeah, okay. So what I'm looking for is the opposite of anxiety. I get it, okay. To accept the things I cannot change. Now, why would I want serenity before I would be able to accept? Well, I looked at my behaviors as when I'm pissed off and I have a resentment, there's no way I'm gonna accept anything. I have to calm down. I have to calm down and get serenity before I can accept it. Oh, the prayer made sense. And then I really got into it when I got courage. You know, the second sentence, courage, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this up. Courage to change the things I can. So I looked up courage. Okay. The opposite of, of uh, I mean, coward, you know, the opposite of cowardice. And then I looked up cowardice. And they said, well, that's something called yellow belly or white belly. And I looked those up. And it was referring to cirrhosis of the liver, what my grandfather died from, from alcoholism. The definition of a coward was an alcoholic in this particular thing. And I understood again what I was up against. I still didn't want to do a fourth step. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I still didn't want to do a fourth step. And my sponsor, he says, he'd listen to me and I'd make all these excuses not to do a four-step. I didn't, it was one of those guys that didn't think he had to do it. And he'd, he'd listen to me and then he'd say, Randy, if you don't do a four-step, you're going to drink again. And I believed him because everything else, everything else he had told me was true. But being a stubborn guy the way I was, I'd be in awe about it and keep trying to postpone it. Randy, if you don't do a fourth step, you're going to drink. He knew I was deathly afraid of alcohol. I mean, I was the one that on October the 6th, 1988, had a dream. Did I already mention this? I dreamed about, oh, I, maybe not. My dream was always the same. 
Okay. The first drink was here. The first drink was here. The glass touched my lips with the first drink and I would wake up screaming. Sweat would be pouring off. My alcoholic girlfriend would be shaking me. Same dream? Yeah, same dream. I knew that alcohol was going to kill me. I knew that the first drink was going to kill me. And I wasn't going to be pretty, and I couldn't do nothing about it. Okay, so he knew. My sponsor knew I was deathly afraid of drinking again. And he knew what to say to get me to do a four-step. But still, I was stubborn. I went to uh, a meeting that was just down the street from where John T. went to a meeting tonight. I saw him before the meeting up on across the street from El Cerrito High School. Had a meeting there. And the reason I went there, uh, they asked me to chair. It was only a five-minute chair. There was a woman there that had a lot of sobriety. And she, everything she said made sense to me. And I wanted to find out what she, why she did a four-step. So I made that the topic. I told them, I can't, I'm having trouble doing a four step. And I went around the room, we were going around in a circle and it came to her and I was just waiting. She said something simple. She said, Randy, doing a four step will get rid of the things that have always hurt you. I went back and the committee's going. Do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. And finally, I remember I pounded my fist down on the table, it was a metal table, and I said, I'm gonna do it. And I did it. And I really got into it. Of course, I didn't wanna tell my sponsor when other people could hear. So we ended, I ended up doing my fifth step in a boat out in San Pablo Bay where nobody was around but him and me. That's how paranoid I was. And he made it easy on me. He, he, he told me his story, all the things, that, his character defects. He told me all that ahead of time. So next to mine, mine was a piece of cake compared to what he'd been through. And it gave me that permission to do the, the deepest, darkest thing. And I'll just say this because I'm running out of time. Oh, I still have a few minutes left. The four, doing a four step turned out to be like a big just jigsaw puzzle. Have you, we've all done jigsaw puzzles, I think. You know, we did more of them when I was young. But you know, you get the big box full of piece puzzles and you throw it out on the table and there's 150 pieces. And you look at it, you, you, there's a picture on the box, but I can't see by the, 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 the little puzzle pieces down there what, what, what the picture is. Well, each puzzle, each little piece of that puzzle was a line on my four-step. Resentments. Uh, oh boy, I had five pages against God. Five pages. I really let them have. But... Each, each, each one of these is a little piece of the puzzle. And in my mind, if I didn't write it down, see, I, I would, I, it would go in one ear and go out the other and this and that. I had to write all this down. And each time I put a piece of puzzle in there, the picture became clearer. So that when I finished my fifth step, it was like looking at a finished jigsaw puzzle. 
I could see why I drank. That, that always confounded me when I was drinking. Why, why am I doing this? I, I don't have a clue why I'm doing this. But when I started looking at character defects, the way the fourth step is set out in the book and resentments and so forth, and going across the line, I could see I was sick. I wasn't a bad person. I was a sick person. I was doing the best I could, but I didn't know what I was up against. So doing a four step just totally enlightened me. My life changed after that. And uh, he got me into the, you know, so we did the fifth step and the sixth and seventh. And, and, and again, uh, El Cerrito Fellowship had plenty of places to be. I was a general service rep in 1995 and 96. I'm a general service rep again this year for 37th Roosevelt. I, I love general service. Uh, I have the personality for it. I can get all bent out of shape and and I hug everybody afterwards. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's a good place to learn uh, about your own character defects, especially about uh, 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 restraint of tongue and pen. That's always been a problem. Uh, but anyway, he got me in the service. He got me sponsoring guy. The first three guys I sponsored, you know, got drunk. And he was right there. Says, You're sober, aren't you? You know, okay. You, all you have is your experience, strength, and hope. You tell them that, they're either going to get it or they're not going to get it. You know, nothing you can say is going to get them drunk. Nothing you can say is going to get them sober. You're just sharing your experience, strength, and hope. That's your whole toolbox. You ain't got nothing else, right? And so, you know, that has turned into lifelong relationships. My oldest sponsee just called me the other day. He's got over 30 years, uh, you know, and it, it, it on, on Thursday at five o'clock, we all get on the Zoom and, you know, we just have a bullshit session amongst ourselves and cross talk and nail each other, and tell the truth. And they get on my case just as much. How does this affect my sobriety? We're not all crazy at the same day, like they, a lot of people say. And my first sponsee, he said it this way, he said, we all have a turn in the garbage can. You know, and some days I'm in the garbage can. And who is it that pulls me out of the garbage can? It's the guys I sponsor. The guys that can see the look on my face. Or they see that I'm not doing this or not doing that. When I lost my first sponsor, I hesitated to get another sponsor. How did I get another sponsor? One of my sponsees kept asking me every time I saw him. You got a sponsor yet? Got a sponsor yet? Got a sponsor yet? Okay, damn it. <laughs> so I asked somebody to be my sponsor. He's my second. So anyway, uh, 8.52. Uh, I'm sober through service. I'm sober through finding a loving higher power of AA, forgiving higher power. I'm sober because of all of you uh, that tell me or share your, with me your experience, strength, and hope. Um, thank you. <laughs>